Welcome back to Resident Reels, the podcast where we watch things and talk about it. Uh, I'm here with my buddy Adam. I'm Adam. Welcome. And I'm Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to change it up, you know, see, see what I vibe with. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, this is why I don't do improv, so I... <laughs> It's been a while since we've chatted, because uh, behind the scenes, we kind of record these in a bit of batches, because we both have very busy lives where we travel a lot for the work we do. But yeah, today we have some animated movies. My pick for this week was The Road to El Dorado. Um, so this was directed by Eric Bergeron, and it was released in the year 2000. Indeed, indeed it was. And then mine was the film Redline uh, in anime uh, from 2009, directed by Takeshi Koyaka, Koyoki. Oh, geez, I had it. I I practiced this pronunciation and then I forgot it. Just, just watch the beginning of the movie. They tell you how it's pronounced because that's how baller this movie is anyways, because it's just he deserves to have a name drop for that craziness of the movie. Um, but yeah, what do you want to start with? Um, I am down to start with talking about your film, honestly. All right. Mostly because, uh, and, and no, no hate or shade for this to me at all. I don't like saying I'm not an anime person because I feel like that makes it sound like I'm, I'm close minded to anime which I'm so not. I'm very open to watching truly like really anything like I've said outside of like gore stuff. It is just not my go-to and I will not actively seek it out myself. So all of the anime that I have seen has either been like, I've been at a buddy's house and they've been like, oh dude, like let me show you this movie or let me show you this show. And I'm like, hell yeah. And I'll, you know, I'll watch it and it's awesome. But then like I go home and I'm not continuing the the experience you know so initially i when you pitched this i had no idea that it was an anime film uh and so i was like cool redline and then i found the like you know cover art from the from the movie and i was like that is absolutely an anime film this will be very interesting um and so i did i don't know if there is a different version to watch it subtitles but i watched the dubbed movie that's fine they're practically the same it's it's okay there's no changes it's just dubbed versus subbed i i also prefer the dubbed because i i feel like the english translation is actually very fitting for this movie okay i actually questioned for a brief moment if it was originally made like in english because it was so um the dialogue i mean the, the 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 dialogue and the translation was so fluid and like things i feel like were translated super well and i'm sure that that took a lot of like this is not the exact translation this is what this should actually be like they like they threw out like cocksuckers in there one time and i was like oh sick okay like this is very on brand for this character and and things like that but but yeah tell me tell me a little bit about why this was your this was your pick so I think I discovered this movie in high school because, I mean, I I'm, I wasn't at the time big into anime, but all the friends I hung out with like were because it was like I was 
you know, in high school, there's like different cliques or groups or whatever. I was kind of part of a misfit group of like weirdos. We all had our own things and did our own stuff and had different passions. But like we all just liked hanging out and playing games with each other kind of thing. So I had some friends who were like really big into anime. But at this time, I was, I mean, I arguably still am, but I became a big fan of this British band called Area 11 and all their music is very anime inspired and I was listening I was watching one of their videos on YouTube back in like the day where like people used YouTube to kind of promote themselves and stuff and it actually worked differently than the current algorithm that YouTube is now but they were talking about anime films or something like that and someone name dropped Redline because like I was like I don't have time for series I don't know about my commitment to a whole anime series kind of thing because I wasn't sure if it was my thing and I was like oh there's this movie about racing but it's crazy and sci-fi and I was like okay and I watched it and I've been in love with it since the soundtrack alone blows my mind the music was epic like absolutely epic it's all it's also like so well crafted like it's it's having a great time it's having a fun time but like it meets beats narratively during a race kind of thing like you you you're throughout the movie you're you get these like little musical cues of different characters like kind of theme songs and then by the time you're like at the red line race and you're swapping between the perspectives, the music just shifts and it's brilliant. And you're like, I'm on board with this. And it's like, it's one of these first movies that like, I started getting into soundtracks of movies to see how clever people were when composing for film. I like this one, like there's a track just called Redline and it's the race and you listen to it and you hear the shifting and you're like, this guy was just on top of it. I mean, it also helped that this movie took seven years to make. Wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. And and not only seven years, over a hundred thousand hand drawn images. Like, cause you know, like the detail was crazy. Yeah, they were like drawing so many frames. Like the movie also originally was only supposed to be like seventy minutes. It had an added thirty minutes to the movie, kind of thing. Like it's insane. That's. I mean, the the visuals in this were so beautiful to watch like take out the storyline take out the music like truly just watching the film on mute would be an experience just to like watch all of that detail that like came through and and that was that that was really cool because i i feel like that is an experience that you only kind of do get in anime as a genre uh as a subgenre of animation i should say like it is is just, I feel, it, I don't know. It's not big mouth, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like people didn't just, like, draw some weird-looking people and, like, move on and, and digitally create everything moving forward. Like, you can see the, the the hands, literally, that, like, went into all of that work. So, like, that those numbers are shocking, but also at the same time, like, absolutely makes sense. He So, Takeshi, he wanted every frame to be a masterpiece, essentially. So whenever someone would pause, it would look stunning. And I think that 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 was successful. I mean, this movie cost them so much because it took so long to make. I mean, the whole uh, I was digging some research into it. The first two years of making this movie was just 
pure pre-production, developing the universe, the characters, the environments, the species, the world kind of thing, which is like insane to think about. There's there's so much of what animators call drawing on ones, because sometimes animators draw on twos, which is like they skip every other frame that they draw a change. So like because our brains can perceive a change kind of thing. But sometimes for more detailed work, they do draw on all on ones. But like that's very time consuming. So like naturally you try and find shortcuts to make something more efficient. But like Takeshi, he comes from being an animator himself. And he's like, I want this movie to look good. I mean, the whole the first shot after we get like the little words uh, prologue of like what this world is, is pistachio shells, right? And they don't need to look that good, but they do. And you're like, this is this kind of movie. I got you. Yeah, I took. I think it took me a second to get into the like, I don't, I don't know, just the bizarreness of the world like like truly the world that exists within this film is so vast and like how there are all of just these different creatures and people and like lands like there's literally is robo world like where they go to like do the red line race and it had such a different aesthetic from like where we were in the yellow line race and stuff uh in the beginning of the film again i think something for me as just someone who does not typically watch anime i was like oh this dude's just got like six limbs and he crawls around on four of them and i there's no explanation and i'm just gonna like take that and we're gonna move on like that's cool so so some more uh, background on the director. Um, so this was his first feature-length film, uh, but prior, he was an animator on a lot of projects uh, under Madhouse Studios, which this movie was also uh, produced under. But he's also known for his short film, for his short uh, world record in the Animatrix. So the Wachowski sisters kind of pulled him because they saw... Uh, his his art style, and they wanted him to do a uh, a short for them, which is kind of brilliant. But yeah, it's it's crazy. Like the illustration of the cars themselves when they go under such duress when they're using nitro, like gold light, I think is what it's called. But like later they use starlight, which is like this crazy nitro. But like you see the machinery like strain and rupture and collapse and then blow apart and it's just you're seeing like the detail of like pushing things to their absolute limit and it's just so brilliant yeah i one of my favorite moments um of the film was and spoiler alerts but like towards the end where i truly cannot remember most of their names and that's honestly on me except for the main guy's name was jp and he had like a bomb rigged well he didn't his associate had a bomb rigged to the back and it was when the crazy dude who had six limbs uh who was the mechanic he uh jp was completely out of nitro he was neck and neck to like win this race and the the dude had just been the mechanic had been like slugging back beers watching this race from like the living room of a mob house and like detonated the bomb not to do anything bad but to literally get him over the finish line since he was out of nitro as like the last boost and the animation of just 
the parts starting to strip away from the car. And then JP and, uh, like I said, I'm so blanking on names. Um, I feel like I should have these written down. Uh, uh, Sonoshi, his like love interest, flying out. There's no car around them. They're just bodies and like flying through the finish line. That was like so beautifully well done. I just got a text from Chandler that said, internet for real dropped, be right back. And so now I am talking to myself and Chandler has popped back on or and is connecting. Hello? So, uh, great. What I was just talking about, Chandler, because I finished my thought. Oh, God. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay, I think we're caught. I think we're good. Okay, okay. I finished my thought. But I was talking about how my, my one of my favorite moments was the animation of when the mechanic character um, sets off the bomb to get them over the finish line as the final boost and watching everything strip away from the car, the explosion, we don't even see a car anymore. And then JP and Sonoshi flying through just their bodies and like crashing through the like feel force field of the finish line. And I was like, that was like, so just beautiful to watch like as a moment. Yeah, for real. I mean, this movie is like wacky racers. If people know that old cartoon reference meets ridiculous anime world building to the next level. It's, it is such a trip and it's amazing. Uh, So much adrenaline. You don't want it to end but it has to end at some point and it ends arguably quite abruptly or very quickly, but like everything gets solved, you know, like all the plot has been kind of tied up and figured out. Yeah. There was no more, there was no like extra resolution fluff. It was like, here is the resolution roll credits. And I was like, sick. Okay. Like, like it works for me. What I, what I, yeah, I liked the, um, I mean, the general layout of the narrative was take take away the the everybody's like a lot of like weird monsters and like power and like all of that kind of stuff. Like it was a very classic story of like there's a racer, the mob got involved. Like it's very similar to uh, Drive, kind of. Like it's like there's he's like throwing the race in the beginning, but then like through happenstance winds up qualifying for the larger race anyway and like just kind of you know there's the 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 love interest another subset of bad guys who aren't the mob who don't want the race to happen so like they're all getting like attacked by the robo world military like um it it was a cool it was a cool storyline to begin with like very classic like trope that you could follow but with the auditory and visual components it was i i I was so much more in it than i was if this had just been like you know some other race movie that maybe wasn't even animated like yeah it is a brilliant piece i mean the soundtrack i have to give props to james uh, shimoji it's just that that does so much for this movie like even the subtlety i mean the subtlety of just like it's like always there. There's not a lot of like silence, honestly. There's always music playing, but like it, it vibes for every location you're in. You're like, I can see this. This is playing in that bar in the background. Oh yeah, this is playing in the 
workshop you know i i get it i'm on board with all of this and it's so crazy the amount of voice acting talent and the characters everyone had it just it worked so well like people are like okay so this is the creature i'm gonna make them like this you know how they move i'm gonna make my voice like that and it's just so brilliantly done and put together so bravo to the whole audio team with that yeah it it, the soundtrack in like what you were saying it was very much giving like the way that someone would design a video game almost of like now you're in the tavern and now you're outside and it's like it wasn't just sound effects it very much was a whole musical world associated with like the back alley or like when he tried to buy cigarettes uh and there was like the really crazy old lady onion headed thing that like sold the cigarettes and like the she has like a total personality shift and like the music ramped up when that happened and then she falls asleep and then the music like dropped back down again like it was all it it was a beautiful orchestration that was absolutely a highlight it's crazy just from the characters and mainly just the dialogue and the few things we see of just the personality of people and the and how much we just learn from that of the politics of this galaxy kind of thing. Because it's just like, you're here just to have fun, but if you really want to deep dive, you can. And you could just be like, there's so much crazy politics going on. Like, this is like my, I lost count how many times I've watched this movie. And I love just like finding more and more things to be like, this is crazy. Like there's a whole like proliferation treaty that's being like secretly like, sabotaged like betrayal like they're using bio nuclear weapons kind of thing and it's just like oh that is apparently like completely totally not okay in this universe and stuff like that it's insane yeah so one of the things that i read was that there's apparently like a prelude movie to this one yes and in OVA, that it's just a couple of characters' backstories. So, like, it really, it's just added fun. Doesn't super link. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Which, like, their little side banter of those two characters in this movie was like, just, it was like a weird comedic relief of like this crying robot army vet guy and just like, I don't know, this scrawny other dude. Like, that's real. I, I don't know. It's just a funny dynamic. Also, I have to say, it did take me like a solid 10, 15 minutes into the film to stop my brain from how much it was hyper-focusing on the fact that JP's hair looked exactly like Johnny Bravo. Uh, like... <laughs> It was just black instead of blonde. Uh, oh yeah, it, it, it's so cool though, and it's 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 longer. Okay, sir. Is, okay, it's I'm longer. Sorry. It is longer. It is longer, but it is the exact same hairstyle. Uh, <laughs> Throughout like the middle act of this movie, where it's like preparations for Redline. I mean, you're mainly following JP. He's kind of like the main focus of this movie. Like wacky races, you get introductions to the other racers, and it's like this like total sports racing kind of channel and it makes sense and it fits so well and it like you see like these racers are doing it for different reasons but they all love the the sport of racing like you get uh what was it lynchman and johnny boya are like bounty hunters yep they're racing yeah and lynchman had i'm pretty sure it was lynchman was like 
big Joker vibes, but with the with, like, but if the Joker drove the Batmobile, which is brilliant, it, it is like brilliant character concepts. And then, and then you have Machine Head, who is this guy who's like, I am one with my car, for I am the machine, and the machine is me, kind of thing, because he's like a cybernetic being, kind of thing, and he's just and the reigning reigning champ, right? Like multi champion of Redline, because no one can beat his efficiency of being one with his car kind of thing and i'm like i can see that in this world i i buy it and you even have your like race car sexy girls that are supposed to exist that they're just twins boy boy and and boss boss boss. (laughs) yeah and that's their whole personality is they literally the narration that pops on screen is like i'm the sexiest race car driver in our planet i was like for sure whoa 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 they write music and they come from a magical planet power place you know like their princess has magical powers and made redline happen on robo world they matter i mean everything has its purpose in this movie which is really quite surprising like nothing's just like that is true you know fan servicey which is which is kind of brilliant but like also it's like he wanted sex appeal and this is how he negotiated it in but like it's brilliant at the same time i feel like and if you have any last thoughts i feel like sex appeal being snuck in is a great segue to my film you're right i just recommend people to check it out if you haven't or even just rewatch it as someone who doesn't watch anime i enjoyed this movie and i also recommend it if that means anything to any of our four listeners so uh <laughs> so yeah road to el dorado <laughs> okay so all right This movie, for me, R.I.P. Blockbuster, was my go-to. So how my, like, family worked was, like, we would pick three movies for, like, the week or whatever because we had, like, a membership. And it would be, like, uh, my mom and I would always go and it'd be, like, a movie that was new that we both, like, would enjoy as a, as a family like one that we thought my dad would also like whatever and then a movie that my mom specifically wanted and then a movie that i specifically wanted without fail every single week i picked my movie that i wanted was the road to el dorado i probably fucked so many people over on wanting to watch that movie because i would rent it every possible chance that i could i was obsessed with it and it is very fun going back and watching it as an adult because I probably haven't watched it since I was like 10 or 11. And I have no idea how they got away with this as a at, like being a true children's movie. I, like I feel like so many of the jokes and innuendos that were in it just absolutely could not fly now. Like, in the slightest even some of the animation so to 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 kind of give a a very brief summary we are in 1519 spain so right off the bat we're historic quote unquote uh (laughs) i don't know how much of this movie you can call accurately historical but our main characters are miguel and tulio and they're basically con artists and they get a map to the road to El Dorado, and they do this through a dice game 
that was rigged, but they actually technically did wind up winning um, authentically, which is kind of a fun spin on this because their whole lives, they are constantly conning people. And then this one game, they happen to actually win, like pure luck, and they get this dice, but then they get found out for being con men and like this con gets exposed. So they're getting hunted down because they are cheaters, but they didn't actually cheat in this one game. And so there's kind of that underlying like, damn, you're really getting your comeuppets for like everything else that you've done, but you actually did this authentically this go round. And so they stow away on this uh, ship where we meet a Spanish conquistador named Hernan Cortez. He's famous. I, I don't know if you know this. He's a He's historical. <laughs> yes, he is actually a historical figure. But like, you know, questionable again, what DreamWorks like, you know, had going on. Very similar, I'd say, to like Disney's Pocahontas. John Smith was a real person, but dot, dot, dot. So they basically, they get caught while they're stowed away on this ship. Uh, but then they break free and then they steal a robot and they get to this land and they realize that it's one of the places that they see like on their map. So now where we are is uh, essentially like a, a an Aztec. I want to, bl- I, I think that's what I yes, looked up. I believe, I believe it was Aztec mainly inspired. Inspired like land. And they meet this native woman shell who was absolutely my dream crush as a child um i i dear god like i think i i watched this and i was like damn yeah i i this really set a lot of standards for me uh as as a as a young kid um and so they're there and these people wind up thinking that miguel and tuyo are gods pretty much and like so even more chaos ensues in that regard and then there's like sacrifice stuff and we can get into all of that but very blatantly like that's the lead up to like us getting to this kind of island where the bulk of the movie takes place one thing i did not know at all was that kenneth brana is the voice of miguel which adds to why i probably have such a love for this movie even as an adult, because Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is my, like, absolute favorite. I think he's a phenomenal actor. Never knew he did the voice acting in this. I think it's very funny that he did The Road to El Dorado and Hamlet. Oh, and Perot. He's in the, he's doing all his big Perot series right now. Yes, true, true. <laughs> so, talking about the sex appeal of things, one of the things that has happened is The Road to El Dorado is one of those movies that has had kind of like a resurgence with popular culture now. Um, so, there's like a whole generation, I feel like, of people who did not see this movie when... Uh, either they were kids or they are currently kids and they are discovering it for the first time. And so it is considered, I believe, like in popular culture, mostly like TikTok kind of streams and channels and things that like, this is like a bisexual fantasy movie. Like every, everyone who like, like watches this, they're like, damn, yeah, Miguel and Tulio and Shell, like just fuck it up. Like just like, just like, a nice big polyamorous happy trio um which i think is very funny so i was doing some research into 
this being developed. And apparently, the initial uh, intention was actually that this was supposed to be a PG-13 film and not a PG film for kids. And essentially what happened was there were two initial directors on this film and then they eventually wound up leaving the film due to quote unquote differences. So as as we read often, I feel like people leave. I had a whole thing on this. Oh, Will Finn and David Silverman. There we go. So they were the uh, original directors on this movie and it was supposed to be really like dramatic. Like they wanted to base this off of the book that was written... This is me learning. I need to do much better organization with my notes. Uh, uh, Hugh Thomas's book, Conquest, Montezuma, Cortez, and the Fall of Old Mexico. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's supposed to be like very true to like a, a discovery story. Like Miguel's character was supposed to like die multiple times and then like come back and that's why like the native people were going to that was like the reasoning of them being like oh my god these people are like gods and then also apparently everything with Shell was supposed to be a lot raunchier she was supposed to be even more scantily clad which if you watch this movie I don't know how you accomplish that even with a PG-13 rating and like the the, the direct quote is um steamier love sequences and I'm like fascinating and so then ultimately what was meant to happen at the end was that miguel and tulio were supposed to save oh it's uh mayan yeah so these mayan people from hernan cortez so that was kind of the original direction but then what happened was the prince of egypt went into production which if you know anything about the prince of egypt it is a very big dramatic full of feeling like film and so the chairman decided, the, the chairman of DreamWorks decided that they should not release another like big dramatic animated film so close on the heels of Prince of Egypt. And so they dropped the rating of PG-13 because they didn't want to exclude like the younger audiences. Um, so they had to like tone the romance down was like the big thing like apparently this is supposed to be a very raunchy film weirdly and uh added a lot more of like the comedy that we see in this uh kind of final version of the film and finn and silverman left the movie due to that dispute that change of the creative direction and that's why eric bergeron wound up taking over and supposedly the chairman of dreamworks also co-directed even though he is not credited for it which i think was an interesting piece of information the chairman of dreamworks is this he was formerly of disney jeffrey katzenberg so he essentially moved over to dreamworks for whatever i i didn't dive into that deep dive kind of thing but he left disney and i mean it's the 90s with disney so disney's in this like weird animation new renaissance is happening at the at this point in the 90s kind of thing when he left kind of thing because like disney was struggling with animation but you know beauty and the beast helped save them essentially so but he wanted to make dreamworks a big animation house again it's crazy how much money they put in so early into this animation house because so much went to prince of egypt but like these projects were like being produced at the in the same timetable which is ridiculous to think about 
and like it was like I read something like they hired like over a hundred animators, but they all got immediately moved to Prince of Egypt because it needed more help. Knowing that and you're watching this movie, you can kind of see of like, oh yeah, there is some really quick shorthand happening in the background because they ran out of time. And that happens, like no fault. Like animators, they do so much work. I get it from me just learning about it. Um, I specifically watch uh, Corridor Digital. They have a React series and they have uh, a few episodes of Animators React. And so they actually talk to like people, like big animators who, who've worked with Disney, DreamWorks and various other studios about what it's like and the artistry and animation. And it's crazy, like how much studying and practice. It's a whole different skill set that I... I am terrible at drawing and I will never be at that. So like I applaud it after like learning so much more. But I think Katzenberg, he wanted it to be like a Bob Hope and Bing Crosby Road 2 movie. And like I only know about these movies because of my mom. She was a big uh, Crosby and Hope fan kind of thing. Like we have VHS copies of these adventures in comedy of them kind of thing. So like, I only know about it and I'm like, I see that now <laughs> or like that was intended. And it's also interesting. Like this is supposed to be the first of a couple sequels, but like it did not perform well at the box office. So it was just cut. And I was like, that would have been fun. Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh, they actually recorded their lines together, which is uncommon at this time for re uh, recording voice lines for animation. You just, do people individually because it's easier to rent a small one-person recording studio and deal with it that way. But no, they, they put them together in a room so they can play off the comedy and improv off each other, which is kind of what you need to do if you're going to go down that direction. And I think it came off really well. Yes. I, I Like I said, I fucking love this film. Like, still, I think that the chemistry of this cast is so good. And it absolutely made sense to me that they recorded in the same in the same room. Like when you can like make eye contact with your scene partner and be like, "This we're doing this." All right, sick. Like I just I think it reads so well. Um, also, yeah, it is absolutely Mayan, not Aztec. So we can, as the official record correction because they actually took uh, the designers and animators and producers all took trips to Mexico to like ancient cities, ancient Mayan cities to like look at the architecture because it was important to them in the film that the architecture look as authentic as possible. Which is a very common thing with animator animation houses because Disney did it all the time, especially when it was like, we're going to do the Lion King. So they all went on an African safari and stuff. But what I think is interesting about that at the same time is that the animators who were not included on that because then all of a sudden everybody got moved to Prince of Egypt was that they wound up having to outsource to two different animation houses, one that was in London and one that was in Vancouver. I think one of them was computer generated because there's like some computer generated 3D sequences and stuff. I think one of them was kind of that house. I think it's also this era where they're trying to play around with 3D animation stuff like computer, computer 3D animation. And you can kind of see it. Like, I think they did a pretty good job of trying to merge it together. But there's some moments where you're like, that sticks out a little bit. Also, the music in this thing. Listen, you've got Tim Rice. You've got Elton John, Hans Zimmer, and John Powell. I mean, what a 
kick-ass group of people. It's the whole team from Lion King. It's the whole Lion King team. And they said, fuck Disney. This weird-ass little sexy, supposed-to-be-PG-13 movie uh, from DreamWorks is the new project. And I, and I fuck with it. I mean, it also helped. Elton John essentially just got to write, write a new album of music because it didn't have to be like a musical you know, like there's only one music number where they actually sing and it's about them pretending to be gods, right? Like that is the only actual like traditional musical number. Everything else is more original soundtrack, which is kind of brilliant. That that was a direction choice too. He was like, I don't want it to be like a Disney musical. I want original music that conveys emotionally for kids kind of thing to understand it but I don't want our characters to sing along with it. And I think it, they did a great job. I mean, it, it does slap. It slaps. Yes. Yeah. I And I like that. I think I would like the movie less if it was like a Disney-esque musical. There are songs we sing along to. I like that it is a straight... It, it Honestly, this whole movie reminds me of the one scene from Lion King where Timon and Pumbaa just start singing. Like, that is this whole movie. Uh, <laughs> just stretched out for, what, 98 minutes? I don't even think that. But yeah. <laughs> I also feel like I want to be careful with the line that I walk saying this. I think that for coming out in, nine, in 2000, that it did a nice job of not making a mockery of ancient civilizations. But obviously, I think there were still some stereotypes and things that like, don't fly today. So I absolutely recognize that and like, you know, putting putting that out out there. But I I, I think that in some ways, it, it did do a lot better than other things that were coming out in 2000, you know, 1999, 2000, early 2000s, that that weren't following like the really harmful stereotypes and like trope type things. I also desperately wanted to play that ball game that they that they all play. Even as a kid, I was like, how how do you play that? That's ridiculous. It looks ridiculous. Which in order to get them to win, because they they're they they they're getting challenged constantly by oh god, I don't know if I remember how to pronounce his name the last part of it's con t-z-e-k-e-l i think it was tetzel con tetzel con okay that's also what i thought it's just like you i feel like i practice things and then we go to record and then we can't record and then two weeks go by and then here we are so he is like the person who is the most skeptical about miguel and tulio being gods and one of the things that gets noticed by him is gel gets a cut and like obviously if you're a god you're not gonna get injured you're not gonna get cut whatever and because gods don't bleed so that is kind of like he's like the antagonist kind of moment um but while they're playing this game like we realize that like shell knows that they're not actually gods because there's like a whole moment for that conversation and so she replaces the ball with an armadillo which again leads us to this like miguel and tuyo just spend their whole lives cheating people conning people lying to people but once again one of the things that gets them in trouble is 
not something that they did. Uh, and, and so even though they are still technically cheating in this moment, they are not the ones who actively made the choice to cheat for themselves. And so I just, I, they really are anti-heroes. Like, like this is a, this is like a buddy cop sort of like movie anti-hero style that was supposed to be PG-13 that, decided it couldn't be PG-13, so now it just left, like, a bunch of, like, children really, like, confused about how flirty the movie was, and, like, with zero explanation or resolution to the flirtiness of the movie, and I, I, it will forever live in my heart as a beautiful animated film with a kick-ass score. To hop back real quick, so I forgot to wrote this down. I mean, first off, Jim Cummings, legend, voice acts in this as Cortez. He's Winnie the Pooh, everybody. Winnie the Pooh plays the big bad Cortez. And then I'm thinking back to that sacrifice scene and just like, they just don't know what's going on until it's like almost too late. And the, the dialogue there is hilarious when they're talking uh, to Tetzelkan because he's just like, I thought this is what you gods wanted. It's like, ah... Uh, we can't do it today. Uh, the stars are aligned. And, and, and like, Miguel's just like, like he says, stars can't do it. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. It's truly like when you didn't read the book for class. And so you just like, you have to start saying all of the things that everybody else has already said, but in a very authoritative manner, uh, just taking the bits of information that you can. And it's, and it's weird because I... I think growing up, I wasn't, like, the biggest fan of this movie, and I don't know why. Like, looking back, I was like, why was I not a fan of this as a kid? And I, I can't figure it out still to this day, because I'm like, is it, this has a, this is an achievement. Like, this, this is a great movie. Why did I not like it, like, as a kid? And I was like, maybe because I was just surrounded by Disney all the time. And like Disney was just being shoved down my throat of like, we all need to watch Disney movies. We all need to watch what Disney, because Disney is the peak of animation kind of thing. So like maybe as I was being skewed by that or what have you kind of thing. Interesting. I had the, I had the opposite. I was not like, I really enjoyed this. See my, my I feel like my top three movies, animated movies, like as a kid, Hercules, Mulan, Road to El Dorado. And I did not necessarily watch The Prince of Egypt very frequently, but I had The Prince of Egypt audiobook, um, and I would read and listen to that nonstop. And those were kind of like my big four, like on repeat things. Something else we didn't mention. Are we sure it's because there's a K? That's Kelkan. I don't know. I'm just trying to remember what how they said it in the movie. Yeah, how they said it in the film. But he like does actually have gifts like magical gifts granted to him. So there's like a whole point where he like conjures this jaguar that like chases uh, Miguel and, and Tulio like through the city. And then they wind out like, or wind up evading it. And then the jaguar and this dude wind up falling to like a giant whirlpool, which was based in kind of like the, the Mayan uh, in this film, I will say, the mind belief in this film, that it led to, like, the spirit world. Um, but what ultimately happens is he actually surfaces in the jungle, and that's how he runs into Cortez. And so he thinks that Cortez is the real god. Now that he, because he believes he fell through this 
portal to the spirit world and that the, the spirits led him to this actual god. And so he offers to take Cortez and the army like to El Dorado. But meanwhile, like Cortez is actually like taking this guy as a slave and like it's like a really horrible situation ultimately. Um, and then the end of the movie literally is just Miguel, Tulio, and Shell leave and like go find a new adventure together, all three of them, the happy little polyamorous trio, because that is the unspoken weird thing about this movie that like is never confirmed. And then you watch it as an adult and you're like, damn, like, listen, I would love to see the PG-13 version of this, but what we would be sacrificing is the fact that it was supposed to be very dramatic. And I don't want that. I want, I want the comedic new direction movie that is PG-13 because I, I want to know, I want to know what these non-toned down steamy love sequences were that were supposed to exist. I desire that. My, my soul needs that, but I'll never get it. It's okay. It's okay. We can only dream, and it's okay to dream. can only dream. And you know what? As a kid, I had a lot of dreams about this film, so I... <laughs> I mean, like, that kind of wraps it up, I feel like, yeah, for, for our two movies. Absolutely. I'm just... I forgot what the next episode is, even though we literally talked about it before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> so, next up, we are finishing season one of Breaking Bad, which is exciting. Uh, and I know Adam's been loving getting involved and he's like accidentally gone too far ahead by accident not realizing like yes i didn't even notice (laughs) but it's so good it's so good i'm excited to talk about it as always uh this is uh resonant reels uh please like subscribe rate us comment what you want to hear from us what we what we should watch ideas etc on all the podcasting platforms yeah all the things like review subscribe tell us if there's anything uh that you specifically uh want us to watch or just like theme suggestions of double features that could be cool i'm i'm also curious did anyone else have conflicted feelings as a child with el dorado please let us know because that'll help confirm this to me for someone who wasn't a big fan as a kid like i could see it but i just can't you know realize it i guess (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, write in about all of your weird romantic feelings regarding the road to El Dorado um, and, you know, affirm for me that I wasn't the only one having some sort of sexual awakening watching this movie at 10. Well, that does it for us. I'll see you next time. Adios. Adios.